You're listening to episode 86 of The Bastards of Kingsgrave, the intersection of A Song of Ice and Fire and everything else. We're returning uh, this week to our longest-running reread of George R. R. Martin's earlier works. We'll be covering Fever Dream, and I'm joined by two of our regular guest hosts. Hey there, this is Duncan, also known as Valkyrist on the forums. And this is Zach, also known as Alias. This is spoiler-filled as usual. That's our. That's what we do usually for these reviews. So uh, do we want to start with our maybe lemon cake or whatever? What, what should we call it? What's a good uh, scale for this thing? How many steam engines or... <laughs> yeah. Oh, what's the term? Yeah, I'm trying to think of a good uh... <laughs> like glasses of blood. Yeah, yeah, blood, blood wine. Blood wine. It's <laughs> a good one. So I enjoyed this book. Um, I thought it had engaging characters. I thought the world building was really rich. Um, as you mentioned, Amin, this is like a book primarily about steamboats, and of, it's about mm-hmm. a character who loves steamboats, and you really feel that vividly. And I think it paints a portrait of this setting and this world really vividly. Um, but it also has uh, some gripping horror and action sequences as well. I found the Deep South setting um, and also the sympathetic monsters in the book, quite original additions to the vampire mythology. I also liked how Martin used the fictional horror of vampirism to reflect the actual horror of slavery and slave societies. Um, mm. as, as York tells Marsh, when it comes to bloodshed, my people have very little to teach your own. Um, The book didn't blow me away like some of Martin's short fiction, but I thought it was a solid improvement over the first novel, Dying of the Light. So I'll give it three out of five blood wines. So for me, my reaction is is pretty similar. I enjoyed the book, and I think that it was a really cool setting, really enjoyable, and I appreciated Abner Marsh as the main character. I thought he was very earnest, and he had this kind of like Captain Ahab quality to him, of just like very doggedly pursuing his particular goals, which I liked. And yeah, the setting was good, and I think it has a slow start. There's a lot of steamboaty stuff, especially in the first half. But once it hits this sort of point of tension and excitement, I actually read the the, the back half of the book really fast. So I, it was definitely enjoyable enough and filled with enough excitement that I had that urge to do that. So for that reason, I would give it I would give it three and a half uh, blood drinks of some sort, blood wine. <laughs> yeah, I think I'll I'm at the same place you guys. I'll give it a solid. For, in, for my rating, 3.75 out of 5, uh, for the same reasons, really. I, I enjoyed it. In fact, I read this book probably around 15 years ago, and I had forgotten most of it, so it was kind of refreshing to read it again with a different perspective. But I enjoyed it both times, so I definitely recommend it. Let's kind of let's kind of jump, actually, out of order here. But one of the issues I had with it, which reminded me of Dying the Light, is just the ending seemed a little bit abrupt or en- uh, uh, rushed, in my view. What do you guys think? I didn't necessarily feel that way. I thought there was like resolution in terms of the final battle. I mean, maybe it ended mm. pretty briskly, but we got resolution at least. We we saw what happened, the fates of the final three characters, and then there was sort of a, a sentimental coda at the end. So yeah, I mean, I guess it wrapped up pretty quickly, but I felt I felt um, satisfied with the ending. So I think it, just in general, the structure of the book threw me a little bit, especially towards the very end. And I think that it just speaks to this being an earlier novel for George, where he's not he hasn't quite developed like a really sophisticated way to to write novels because it's hard. It's very different from writing short stories to actually like plot out a whole story this long. So I think that that's a piece of it. But yeah, for me, the, the main thing that I took issue with was just the way that towards the end of the book. So, of course, the the primary tension is that um, Damon, Julie and the bad vampire 
has taken over the fever dream, the steamboat, and and of course Abner wants it back. Uh, but he makes repeated attempts to storm the ship and and fails. And it just at some point the suspension of disbelief or just like my the the tension the high of that kind of died for me because he just kept he repeatedly like th- like three times has these different attempts to take it and of course he eventually succeeds but just i don't know like that that structure felt weird to me that that there would be three separate attempts to do the same thing um and there was no real like lasting consequences of that like i don't know it just felt it felt weird i think you mentioned briefly in the document that part of the even martin kind of realized the kind of repetitiveness or like <clears throat> unbelievability and he, his line is in there that maybe damon julian was kind of like letting him try right, again and yeah. again like he, he wanted it to, to end he couldn't consciously do it whenever he was actually in in danger his instincts would, would, would kick in but when mm-hmm. the danger wasn't close enough he he would kind of actually almost intentionally slip up which is an interesting yeah that's answer. fine for his characterization i'm okay with that i think just it it did it did um impact the tension for me i think just the notion that because he was i really enjoyed him as a villain for most of the book but by the end he just felt kind of silly because he was just like letting them get away with this multiple times without without any consequences consequences and of course vampires and this is part of the problem they have inherent limitations as they're constructed here right where they can only mostly most most of them can only do stuff at night so that definitely makes life easier for the the humans um in these various attempts to uh get one over on them yeah the the pacing was quite odd at times because like some points in the novel like slows right down as he's describing every inch of a steamboat and how awesome they are and how much he loves them but then like they'll jump years ahead in time and i think you know the civil war gets about one paragraph of description (laughs) so it's sort of yeah it sort of shudders and and halts at various points zooms in zooms out a lot of time passes so it can be a little um so you're saying it has the pace of a steamboat, but it's sometimes it builds up and quickly, and sometimes it starts. Yeah, sometimes you gotta throw the lard in the engine, and then years <laughs> pass really yeah, fast. Yeah, gotta throw the, the the grammatical lard in the engine, and also yeah. the, the the structure of maybe an actual fever dream, where where it does feel like you're doing this, like the three sort of failed attempts of retaking mm. the the ship are almost like this repetitive nightmare that just never resolves itself or something. That's it does point. kind of build up, like like each time it seems like Marsh is going to bring this whole force and it's going to be this battle, and it just kind of <laughs> peter out and fails. Like like it, it's like if you just done this properly the first time, and I think you, Joshua kind of mentions that he's like, why do you keep like pushing this rock up the hill? If you just like brought in like the thirty guys as originally planned, you probably would have done it. You would have succeeded the first time. Yeah, just yeah. Bring in twenty good men, and this would not have been an issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that Martin was? Uh, oh, he. He enjoyed the history of steamboats, and he was writing about. You think like he started first with that, and then went to the vampires. Like, do we actually think that that's the order they went with the writing? Like, what do you think? Like, I don't know if he's spoken a lot about this uh, particular work. Um, I haven't read anything about his thoughts on the novel necessarily. Like the sort of the dust jacket describes it as Bram Stoker meets Mark Twain. So it might have been a sort of a, a gimmick. Like maybe he was just fascinated by that period and by that setting, but he's also a genre writer, so he likes horror, so he wanted to merge the two. So I thought that was quite novel. Um, I mean, it has it has sort of been done. Like I did a quick research on like vampire novels and um, Interview with a Vampire is sort of set, parts of it are set during the antebellum period in the Old South. Mm. So there's, there's a bit of a, um, a precedent for it that might have inspired Martin. But that came out a bit before, I think, right? I'm looking at the... Or yeah, was not, yeah, I think it was late 70s, 70s, whereas this yeah. is early 80s. But yeah, I don't, I don't know what the significance is. I haven't read anything 
from Martin's point of view. But I was interested in what you guys thought that added to the to the vampire story. Well, I like the the whole almost the science fiction approach, or just like trying to find a naturalistic answer for that, like kind of tying in with the whole like point that they could survive in the sun for a while. It was very unpainful, but like they didn't just like immediately die. Mm. It was just it was harmful to their health, and Joshua pushed it pretty far. But I thought that was a fairly good contribution early on compared to a lot of other works which is still supernatural yeah i just enjoy this sort of thing in general this concept it's sort of that american gods kind of thing right where like the Mm. old world evils follow into the new world and (laughs) you you get that description here where um they say like they have this is the safest place for them because it's just less charted there's less people hunting them down so they can live here and that was just i don't know that's just a cool concept by itself and i think it also the the notion of these vampires fit well with the way that he was introducing this deep south setting or just this um you know on the river mid mid um west sort of setting that we get here Hmm. um i i think that it just was a good mix because as we hear in the novel uh, and I think this is mostly laid out and we get this kind of just description of New Orleans. It's described as like this very beautiful, opulent place, but there's this lingering decay underneath. It's sort of like a, a facade to hide the the evil or just the, the wretchedness or the bad things about hmm. both just the place itself on a very superficial level, but also America at this time. And I think just the the way that the vampires have to hide in the shadows and live this secret life, I thought it was a nice a nice mix with that. Yeah, I think like Martin shows that this kind of is an attractive place for vampires to go because in one sense it's kind of uncharted and untamed and unorganized in in the way that Europe had become organized. But also the fact that slavery is legal sort of allows them to get away with a lot more violence and a lot more uh, depravity because you can literally, I mean, it's legal in this society to just buy a person and and kill them um, Mm. and no one's going to sort of raise their eyebrow at that. It's a straight, it's an odd choice to like have like historical sort of traumatic events in an effectively a genre book, but I think it does a good job of like, showing you that actually we don't really need vampires there's actually horrible things within our history that are just as disturbing and just as almost Mm. like it's almost like we need vampires to sort of shield ourselves from the actual horror of a lot of the things that humanity has Mm. done we need to put it into a monster because we don't want to look at it in ourselves but yeah, I think there's a lot, a lot, of, a lot going on with that idea of the sort of the depravity and the, and the violence beneath this this uh, surface of sophistication and whatnot. I think Damon Julian's like a good representation of that because he's so sort of languid and sophisticated and, and uh, upper class, uh, but it hides such a sort of bestial um, nature. Um, and I guess you can see that not not even just in America, but just in general. Like there's a, they sort of talk about the the, the violence that occurred in France, which is where York's from. And I think his father says something like, the the red thirst is on this nation. So various nations have gone through this period of just violence and depravity that kind of gets covered up with this sort of veil of sophistication and and order and rationality. Yeah, I remember when uh, Joshua York mentions, I think, Vlad the Impaler and other characters, he's like, these guys were not vampires, these were your people. I'm just making, he's like, I'm just clarifying that they're not of our people. So that was kind of interesting that he made that point. I'm trying to think of, like, what I took away as maybe the theme or the, like, the meaning of of the story. And uh, two two concepts really came to mind. Uh, The first was... uh, it's just the whole concept Well, Joshua York's explaining his past and how he overcome, like first he overcome the red thirst. Like he, he felt really bad about it, but then he realized, well, initially he really, he really had no choice. He was controlled by it. And he said, without choice, you can't have good and evil. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was one of the, the main meanings. And then the other one, I guess is 
just more dealing with like how do you overcome your your bestial or violent history like evolutionary history like it was joshua york's there but just even human history can you overcome it or not and you can it's very difficult like it's it's extremely difficult because joshua york is almost like the he's just the humanity and the intelligence and he keeps losing and losing and losing to, to damon julian almost every time right because it's extremely difficult he's able to do it although the one of the, the times he's, he's actually able to do it he's partially draws upon his bestial nature <laughs> to do so yeah i think it is about and and those positions are kind of articulated in York and Julian. Uh, Julian basically says, like, we're the strong, the strong force the weak to do their bidding. We take what we want. That's just the way of the world. And York saying, no, that's that's a bad way to go. That's destructive. It's destructive to the world and destructive to yourself. And you see that in Julian basically like this. He's just an empty vessel. Like, he, all he knows is, is violence. And he can dress mm. it up the way he likes. But at the end, like, beneath all... And that was probably one of my favorite descriptions when when marsh is looking into his eyes and just sees this kind of sequence of different faces and different costumes that that um julian has worn throughout the centuries and and that millennia all the way down to this kind of bestial thing and york is kind of rallying against that and i think that kind of reflects like human struggles like specifically maybe the civil war where um america was kind of having this battle within itself you know do Mm. we do things the way we've been doing do we dominate other people to enrich ourselves or do we say no that's wrong we can do better than that do we sort of deny our kind of i don't know reptilian brain programming of of crushing our uh, those that are weaker than us and feeding us off the weak or do we try and make something better so I think the red thirst is something that um, Martin is suggesting exists in vampires and humans, and it's kind of reflected in both. Mm. Yeah, I really think it's about the battle of the heart within the self, you know, like Faulkner, the sound of the fury, you know, mm. <laughs> and the old George line. No, yeah, you guys, you guys nailed it. What I, what I would agree entirely about what it's about. Um, I'm the. I just want to say, like, I actually did enjoy the steamboats. Like, I actually, I actually enjoyed that as a, as a. Um, as a piece of the setting and just a historical element to it. Mm. Like, I just thought it was like, I was just, I, I can understand basically what I'm saying, why Martin would be captivated by this concept mm. of like the steamboats on the Mississippi river and on, on all these various rivers and the trade that happened and the, and the travel and the excursions people took. Like, I just, I, I, I was intrigued enough that it made me want to go learn more about that as a thing. So I, I appreciated it, even though it does kind of go overboard. No, no, <laughs> I agree. I loved all that stuff. I think there's uh, there's obviously an enthusiasm in Martin's um, perspective of, of that period and, and that very old world uh, technology. It's there's something quaint and charming about it. Um, and it, it does almost feel, we were joking about it before the episode, but it does feel disingenuous to talk about the vampires because so much in this book is about steamboats. <laughs> so we should, it, it is worth uh, pointing out that. And I loved all that. And I think that was something that I um, appreciated over the Dying of the Light because I found Dying of the Light so sort of mm. bleak and depressing. Whereas there's there's such a like a verve and a vigor and uh, a, a sort of almost like childlike curiosity that we see the world through Abner Marsh's eyes and his love of steamboats that I, that I actually found really interesting, even though it was ostensibly, I don't know, about a topic I wasn't particularly interested in before I read it, but I found quite enjoyable seeing through Marsh's eyes. Well, even uh, Joshua, uh, it gets swept up. He really enjoys it, wants to to drive it and stuff, or like steer it. And I mean, even even uh, Damon for, for a short period gets <laughs> swept up by as well. So it's intoxicating to everybody in the story. And, and I guess maybe zooming out to like, 
reoccurring themes in Martin's work. There is something interesting mm. about like looking at this time period, the idea of steamboats and the idea of the antebellum South and the good parts and the bad parts, but looking at something that no longer exists and the fact that we're always looking back at it through this kind of nostalgic lens. I think a lot of Martin's works have that feeling of like something that's lost, like Dying at the Light, obviously it's set in this kind of ruins of this festival planet that was once a, a, a place of great life and energy, but has kind of faded away and been abandoned. And the same way that steamboats are kind of gradually replaced by other technologies. You know, he's chasing this beloved fever dream all through the novel and he finds it, you know, rusting, overgrown with weeds in this kind of uh, abandoned mm. bay. So there's something sort of uh, what was lost and, and what can't be regained and romanticizing the past and all that. And I think you see that in the vampires too, because they're romanticizing this like sort of legendary city that they're all trying to get back to and marsh is kind of romanticizing this steamboat that he had and it's almost like Christ christianic like this idea of paradise lost and you're always trying to get it back i guess also maybe to talk more directly to song of ice and fire was that you zach you wrote some examples you wanted to talk about sure i mean there's some very basic things that i just thought were things that i could see that he kind of establishes just things that he enjoys talking about or doing in his in his writing that that I saw in both. I think a really simple one is just that he, he uses the phrase blood of my blood here, which for the vampires mm -hmm. uh, as like them being connected in that way, which is a thing that is, of course is a phrase we hear uh, with the Dothraki. Um, a more, a more significant thing was that we get like a single combat here. And this might've just been my past experience with Martin having read a, a song of the fire, but it was the fight between um, Harry Mike and Sour Billy where like Harry Mike holds all the cards here. He has guys yeah. backing him, but Sour Billy goads him into a 1v1, which is like a, a very a Song of Ice and Fire thing, right? To kind of get the upper hand. And he has like the broad moves to like, you know, like take advantage of every possible angle so that he can win, mm. not not fighting honorably, etc. Like I just I, I just got that connection very quickly. Um, this next one is not mine. If I think, Is that you, Duncan? Well, yeah, the the. I thought Damon Julian's um, idea of the cattle and, you know, they make things and we take them right. felt very ironborn. Um, we do not so, we just take. But I think um, the comparison goes even further because I think that like Damon Julian, the ironborn culture is very self-destructive. It's all about taking and conquering, but within itself, there has no real future. Now, here's an interesting idea that I, that I had while reading it. So frequently throughout the book, we have Abner Marsh like wishing he had killed Sour Billy like in the first time that they stormed the boat or whatever timing that he had the opportunity to do so. But mm. Joshua York tells him that, no, actually, you shouldn't do that. He could be useful to us later. Like he's essentially parroting the language that that Gandalf uses in Lord of the Rings, where he is saying like you should like Frodo, of course, is remarking on how it, why didn't Bilbo just kill Gollum and, you know. Frodo's or uh, Gandalf is like, you know, you it's not so easy to take a life. You know, mercy can be valuable and it can come back to, yeah, to help you. And yeah, it does yeah. at the end of that story. <laughs> and uh, of course, that's why the ring is destroyed. Sorry, spoilers for Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Even the wisest <laughs> cannot see all ends. That material. Yes. So here we have it in the end where Sarah Billy, because he's not killed, he saves the day. Essentially, he, he incapacitates Damon and that allows them to get the upper hand because he is just so because he's essentially a thrall um, to to uh, Damon, and he's just the promise to be made a vampire has not been fulfilled, and he's just so filled with hate and distrust at this point that he he turns the table. So, 
much like Gollum, like this evil figure supposedly actually ends up saving the day, which I thought was interesting when thinking about a song of ice and fire, because of course that's the construction of Lord of the Rings where like the power of mercy, right? That's a great thing. Like you can actually, there's actually sort of a magical force to it, but in Lord, or in a song of ice and fire, not a thing at all. Like there's even the mention when, all right, spoilers for a song of ice and fire here. Hopefully you've read that. <laughs> Anyone who listening to this has to, I would assume, but I mean, Oh yeah, I know. I'm just, just I'm just <laughs> yeah. uh, covering the bases, but yeah. So at the end of, of game, uh, game of Thrones, um, when Ned is imprisoned, like he says like the madness of mercy when he chose to tell Cersei about, about what he found out about uh, the lineage of her children. So in that case, mercy doesn't help at all. Like it just makes it, it just actually is what, leads to his demise essentially uh to ned's demise so it's an interesting evolution i think maybe of how martin thought about this stuff because it seems like he was emulating lord of the rings with fever dream uh but but actually working against it and the concepts in it uh in a saga best and fire i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily say he's against i mean there is that one line in that one example but i think it remains to be seen what the ultimate view of that thing is and i mean there's sure. there's arguments to be said mercy is fine as long as you're you're truly in power but don't do it until you're actually <laughs> <laughs> are secure like a... yeah you can critique ned's moves in many yeah. ways but I, I i would be very curious to hear from him if he was thinking about the Gollum thing mm. when he wrote this because it just felt very similar to me especially because of how joshua york talks about how actually maybe you shouldn't kill him a few times in the story yeah, yeah no, I, I like the Gollum comparison because he is yeah he is a character just kind of consumed by this one idea and becomes completely enthralled to this sinister power because of this one promise and just kind of it seems like his body just kind of wastes away like mm. Gollum becomes this kind of gangly you know hideous creature yeah it is so dis- it's so disgusting what happens to him but he, and he but but Sour Billy is one of the only I mean, there's only two POV characters right there's Abner Marsh and Sour Billy and they're just kind of inverses of each other one is having an equal relationship the other one's a thrall mm. with the vampires mm. and uh yeah I thought Billy was interesting because, like, Damon Julian is obviously the villain, but a lot of his work is done by Billy. And he's in many ways just as abused and just as used by by the vampires as, as a lot of the other vampires' victims. And it made me sort of think about, like, the way that in actual society, a lot of the people sort of implicated in these oppressive systems whether it's, I don't know, slavery or whether it's patriarchy or whatever, by um, having to sort of, I don't know, not wanting to be at the bottom. So if you're a couple of rungs above those at the bottom, you can feel a sense of power and you can sort of participate in the system of, of oppressing those below you or be, be sort of convinced to do that by those above you. Or I have a false hope that you can actually make it to the top. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's promise, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, you have this aspirational goal that I, even though I'm at the bottom or I'm near the bottom, I can climb up. And because I can climb up, because I'm given this hope, I'll kick those below me to try and get a, another rung up the social ladder. So I think that's I guess the, we that's the have trick that, that's uh, being played. The overall discussion on the characters, and again, we're going into our last few questions, I guess, here. But we'll, we'll, before we get into that, I just I will mention one thing that I noticed the language in this book is pretty strong, like with with the use of the N word and stuff. And I know that Martin is basically he's basically showing I think that's the way it was then. But it was just something that did catch my eye. I was like, wow, this is really showing up over and over and over again. I don't know, I don't know what the result is, but mm-hmm. it, I mean that's probably what that's the way people spoke back then, right? He's just trying to so like it was nothing to them, right? Yeah, I don't I don't know enough about like deep south history to know what terminology they used i assume that was what they used <laughs> if you own people as slaves i don't think you're speaking of them respectfully yeah yeah right? like yeah. that's like the norm yeah exactly um, 
Um, although I don't think Marsh, just from memory, I don't think Marsh actually uses the term, does he? I feel like he. I feel like he did. Maybe. Okay. I feel like he did. He didn't use it with like uh, venom or something. Yeah. He just mentions it. It's just like such a normal term. Right. To even Marsh. I don't like Martin's trying to be historically accurate. I, I assume. Yeah. Well, here's an interesting piece of it. Um, I, well, of course, the vampires use very demeaning language for all people, and they use yeah. it for the slaves as well. But they actually don't use the N word. I don't think. Oh, really? Mostly. Um, so that's an and especially like the good guys like Joshua York. He certainly does never. He never uses <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting there to kind of establish them as the sort of sympathetic monster that you were talking about, Duncan. It's like a way to distinguish them from these the prejudices that are in place by the humans that are in many ways just as sinister. Yeah, and, and that's sort of the villainy of the vampires and the sort of sympathetic aspect of the vampires is often directly tied to their thoughts on slavery. Like Damon Julian justifies his treatment of humans because of the humans treatment of each other and the fact that right. some humans enslave others and says well you do it why can't we do it you enslave black people uh, you eat animals why can't we do it that's just the natural hierarchy uh, whereas york says you know that's wrong that's like there's actually no difference between you at all like i'm less of a human than both of you you guys are you, you know black people and white people are virtually the same so why are you treating each other that way like there's something there's something wrong there so he he is it's not just a like a sort of a a setting just for the sake of it like he seems to be commenting upon it or using this theme of vampirism as as a form of social critique i mean you already made that point that julian basically says like when he kills a child it's like a slave owner could have done the same right yeah like he, he he's actually not doing anything illegal which, which which shows like the whole the whole hypocrisy of like just slavery right like they were able they could just kill they were viewed as property hmm. um and we do see like this obviously not a lot of social progress occurs in the novel but individual characters seem to have slight transformations like marsh goes out of his way to actually think of like initially he's very anti-abolition like it seems mm. to be it seems to be characters are either outwardly you know horrible and racist like billy tipton or they're just kind of indifferent and they don't want to rock the boat and they're kind of like well i just don't want to think about this I don't, well, I don't, it's actually interesting i don't His want to particular... cause trouble Abner Marsh's particular reason why he does not like abolitionists is he doesn't like that they're Bible thumpers. Like he doesn't like the the spouting about uh about God. Like that's the main reason. He just yeah. they they bother him. They just annoy yeah. him. Yeah, exactly. So. It annoys him, and annoys it annoys him to think about. And I think a lot of people are like that. Like they just don't want to think about that. And you see it today as well. People just just bristle at the at the idea of that that the way they live their life is somehow wrong or somehow immoral. Um, but he does have a slight change of mind through his conversations with York and gaining different perspective on humanity and actually talks to a few of the the uh, African-American cooks that he's got, that he's employed and say, well, actually, you know, this is wrong. Like, it, it's just wrong. Like, I get that now. Or I'm starting to realize that now. Well, one of his cooks is, is actually saves him at some point, right? Remember, he has a, he helps, he helps them. Yeah. Or helps Joshua as well. Yeah, yeah. It, and it's interesting that the um, the African-Americans on board the ship are the first people to realize the danger of the vampires. Like, they're the ones mm. who are afraid to go to this place. And and to me, it feels, again, like this idea of appearances and and w perhaps the the African-American slaves and, and, fr and freedmen are see things that the white people don't like they see horrible things that are happening in this society that that white people uh never see because it's covered up with this kind of glitz and glam or sophistication 
Um, mm. There's monsters that only certain people in society see, and the rest of us are kind of blind to it because of the way society is organized. I'll just make a correction. I'll, I think you're right, Duncan, that, that Marsh himself never uses the N-word himself. It appears all the time in his chapter, but I don't think he says it as himself. Yeah, because I feel like... I feel like his chapter was first and then like Billy's was second or third. And it sort of hit me like a sledgehammer, the amount, the amount of appearances yeah. of that yes. word. And I felt, whoa, oh, this yeah. is gross. Like, do I actually want to read this book? Obviously it's, it's a certain historical point of view, but it just seemed to jump out a lot more in that chapter. So I thought maybe it was more apparent in, in Billy's chapters than Marsha's. Mm. Something I, I did like about just speaking about Abner Marsh a little bit more as a character Something I did like about the lard fueled time skip part at the end is that, like, he's not during that time, he is not just like purely consumed by his need to reclaim the fever dream. Obviously, it's a thing that dominates his mind and that he's he's constantly concerned about, but like, he is learning and growing during that time in ways. Like, he's not just like single mindedly, statically focused on this one thing, and it and, like you really get the sense that he has grown as a person uh, since uh, the last time that we saw him like actively doing things like along the last mm. period of time. So uh, I agree. Although there was something sad about like his life at that point, And there was sort of, I don't know, I got a jolt of hope and excitement when he read about the race between those two ships and he got sort of excited and I'm going to, I'm going to go watch that. So oh, yeah, I, I think it is good that he's kind of, he seems to be growing and seems to be doing other things with his life, but obviously the kind of prime of his life seemed to be when he was, when he was with the steamboats and you get a, a flicker of that. And it was kind of heartbreaking when he realizes that the fever dream is no more and he's not able, he's not never actually going to be able to race it. I felt so bad for him when, when he learns that York lied to him about how the plan for like Damien's plan was to like right outrace the other, sh- the other boat. Yeah. <laughs> like it was just a ply. And he was like, no, I love that. I wanted to do that. <laughs> so sad. It's so sad. He loved it. You wanted to race the steamboat so bad. Yeah, I mean, it's a romance between a man and his ship. Ultimately. That's what this, it's true. this story is. So my final question I want to talk about is listed here. Just, we kind of talked about it a bit before. Just the thoughts on this, just view of vampires. I thought that was pretty cool. Like a vampires as an involved species, I guess. I was trying to think like the way it was suggesting it was before the current people came up. Maybe they were evolved beside Neanderthals or something, and then they have this higher level of oxygen in the blood, and they just live off people and stuff. I thought that was pretty cool overall. Although it did the, the one plot hole that I mean, that seemed to me that it, it, like they couldn't seem to survive off animals. They needed people. Well, then who do they eat before? That's why I, I thought maybe they. Were eating Neanderthals or something before, like the current forms of people came up. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I thought it was strange how they don't reproduce, or it's very hard for them to reproduce. Because you think every mm. animal, every animal existence, their like primary instinct is to reproduce, but they seem to be an animal like no other because they can live forever. They don't, mm. you know, foreseeably unless well, can, they kill them forever. Can they actually forever. live forever though? I mean, they can live very long. Yeah, the question is raised whether it's indefinite or not. Yeah, that's like, true. Yeah, but I, I thought it was a fine construction. Of course, the science of it can be questioned if yeah. it makes sense, like <laughs> evolutionarily. Um, but I, I thought it was a fine construction to kind of like demonstrate the fact that they are long lived and they have these advantages, but they have this other drawback, and that's why they don't dominate the earth um, because they have this this one one of many actually weaknesses they have. Like I just appreciated that, and it even makes the point that 
they're not like the traditional vampire where like if they drink your blood you become a vampire and if they were they would everyone would be vampires (laughs) it's like actually kind of a logical explanation for that i I think the basic theory of that the, the the population is just like animals that live longer tend to have less offspring like it's not that it's caused by but there's there's often like, the right, yeah. like humans or elephants or stuff they don't have like tons of offspring but like it's not a rule but it just kind of correlates like if you're younger you, you breed many and so as, as if you live longer you don't have to have as many although it is it, it, they, they are dying out they're basically dying out right now like i mean josh is trying to save them and trying to use medicine it's like it's like a 50 50 chance or something like the the, the woman dies when she even has a baby Mm-hmm. Right, like uh, it seemed like that was like was very low odds. Mm. All right, well that's the main questions. I just had a couple general notes that I wanted to talk about. Uh, so Marsh's company, the Fever River Packet Company, George R. R. Martin actually uses that name. He was using it as of at least 20, 2014 when I used to like send him mail him stuff to get signed and stuff. He that was the ad. He used the Fever River Packet Company, and I think he still uses so it. That's it might where actually... I have to send the tub full of baseballs. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, no, I mean, there's this article here talking about there's a scholarship that's being funded by the Fever River <laughs> Packet Company. So that's kind of cool. The, the, the name is actually preserved there. Yeah, it's nice. It, it's nice to kind of like, I don't know, see that he appreciates the thing he created here and that he wants to keep it alive in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think it is a, just a cool name, so I can see why he'd want to use it. The whole the whole fever dream thing is, is referred to a lot of times I think in his works. So I don't know if we explicitly mentioned. That. I think we did, but that's a repeated theme. And then there was the other the other comment. There's actually a, a, a paper like a academic paper written on this story. Now I only browsed it because it's pretty long. He went quite detail in the whole issue of slavery and the connections there. But I thought that was pretty cool that uh, there is a paper. So I'll release that link with this episode. I just didn't get a chance to to read it in the depth that it deserves. I was reading, I think, I don't know if it was a paper, but it was an article and it was kind of making the argument that like, it was kind of doing like a, like a Marxist reading of Fever Dream and it reading about like some of the terminology that Karl Marx uses when he's describing capitalist societies. And he actually uses the word vampire to describe capitalism at a certain point. And he describes it as sort of like this dead entity that sucks the lifeblood out of laborers and the article was kind of looking at Fever Dream uh, through that lens and looking at the kind of society of slavery and the fact that slavery is kind of this vampiric system of preying upon others and sucking their lifeblood. Something I appreciate just talking a little bit more about the, the way the vampires were presented. I like that they were parasitic in every way and that that's laid out. Like they're not just drinking blood to survive, but there's the point that they cannot, like they just don't have the skills to create things like cities and mm. just like these systems and these things so mm. like they have to live on live off humans just to like have these basic needs fulfilled like they they need to insinuate themselves in these human civilizations because they don't know how to create their own civilization or at least they have never had the the will to do so but one i mean we've talked in, in some of these other podcasts about how like martin's time in Dubu- dubuque i can never say it was uh, an inspiration i think you clearly see that here and i think he even has said that like that's when he came up with this or that's where the inspiration came from i wonder though like do you guys think that he actually like visited visited a graveyard and saw some like a grave of a steamboat man and was like <laughs> well i need to write a book because like that's kind of how the book ends right is that they the people visiting the grave of Abner Marsh in a, a place that's very like I assume Dubuque. <laughs> so, I don't know. Maybe that actually happened. I guess I would be remiss if also if I didn't mention. I mean, because this is what I, whenever I used to talk about Fever Dream, like after the first three years ago, was the whole concept of uh, 
well, it, is this just another view of the others? Like, could they just be evolutionary, just another species of different capabilities, different focuses? So I think that that's something that this comes into discussion. I, I don't think it's directly relevant to to uh, Game of Thrones, but it was at, at that time was always a thought like of the biological theory of others of just being like some other race. Hmm. Well, an interesting distinction, too, between these vampires and the others is the others are more of that traditional monster where they bring you when they like infect you with whatever thing, like they bring you under their thrall and raise you. Mm. It's more like a zombie thing, but they raise you and they make you part of their army. And that's not a thing here uh, with these vampires. But with the others, it is uh, an element of their their magic. So that was it's kind of interesting distinction. You mentioned Faulkner before, uh, Zach, and, and Martin cites that quote a lot that Faulkner gave about all good fiction is about the human heart in conflict with itself. And I thought that was interesting because like Faulkner is like one of the preeminent kind of Gothic Southern writers of Amer- the American literary tradition. And this is kind of the closest we get to that type of fiction from Martin. It is this, you know, Southern setting. Uh, it's it's looking towards the past. It's quite dark and violent and grim and brooding. Um, it has monsters in it. So I thought that was an interesting connection to one of his kind of famous uh, inspirations of Martin. I would genuinely be really curious to hear him talk about this, this book more and what inspired it and just what he was trying to do with it. Yeah. Um, it's kind of unfortunate that, like, of course, the Song of Ice and Fire has kind of dominated the... I don't know, the media attention that Martin <laughs> can give out. And uh, if I ever had the chance again to like talk to him or ask him a question, I'd probably ask him about this. We'd ask him about all his early works. I mean, enough has been said. Right, that, exactly. And he probably would be more receptive to it, too. So there, there's that. And the, and the use of a histo- an actual historical settings quite unique in terms of his fiction, his works, isn't it? Like, I can't think of another uh, novel or short story that's actually set in an actual historical period. Most of them are either set in the future or sort of contemporary works. Mm, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the Armageddon rag is set in our world, but I think it was contemporary to the time it was being written. Yeah. So, yeah. I had a Armageddon rag excerpt at the end of my edition of this book. Ah. I did not choose to read it. <laughs> but if I choose to read it at some point, I will happily take well, a look so at it. That's the one that nearly ended Martin's career. It ended his writing career right, yes. for, for a while. I, I, wonder, I wonder how this... I think this one was fairly successful. Like, it wasn't... He earned enough. It wasn't hugely successful, but... If I recall correctly, the issue with uh, Armageddon Rag wasn't just that it wasn't successful, but like he had to pay licensing for music because it's mentioned in the novel or something like that, which uh, is very yeah. costly. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. Each, each chapter, <laughs> I think, starts with lyrics that he had to pay licensing fees for. Yeah, Fever Dream, you have to, I, you have I did to do it. that I, even in, in, in written works. That's, I, uh, that's, uh, I guess, I guess so. Yeah. Well, you wouldn't think so. Yeah, a quote you'd think would be fair fair use yes. <laughs> um but it was like fever dream i did a quick google search beforehand and it's reviewed quite widely um it's mentioned a lot so what it does seem to be well known as a work in certainly in like the sort of vampire um literary tradition. Well, how, how old are the quotes because i mean there's a lot of the reprints that, that i've made that are that are out there right? are these old quotes from from the um, 80s or like the last 10 years i don't think they're that recent um, I'd have to have another look. Um, but even just looking on like Wikipedia, like vampire novels, it's mentioned. It gets its own paragraph, I think. Mm. Um, so it's not it's not insignificant. I think it was it seemed to do you know mildly well. Do you guys think this could be adapted? And if so, how would you structure the adaption? Would it be like a mini series or like how would it how would it go? Uh, Netflix miniseries. 
I don't know. <laughs> I think it could make a good movie. Um, I, I think it has some really good scenes, like some really good dialogue scenes and action, you know, sort of tense action scenes, like the the scene where all the vampires gather around the dining table and, and eat that baby. It's pretty intense. Um, I think you would have to change the structure of it with the things I was talking about, with like the three separate stormings of the fever dream. Yeah, like so I, you, I feel you like have that like would have one storming really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You could just condense yeah. it. I, yeah, I, and I think it could be good. What, one thing I was a little disappointed was I, I didn't find it like as scary as some of his other horror works. Like there's some there's some creepy and some intense moments. It's not really scary. Yeah, but I, I wasn't for some reason I had it in my mind that like it would be more psychedelic than it was because it's called Fever Dream. I thought it'd be more sort of just like chaotic vampires going up and down the river, just terrorizing towns, and it'd just be super trippy and weird. Um, but it was pretty, it was relatively, I don't know, digestible and pardon the pun. And, um, like, I don't know, <laughs> not, not paint by numbers, like, but I don't know, it was, you know, it was a pretty standard book. I, I felt nothing too out of the ordinary. Yeah. We get the one sequence in it where he's back on the fever dream and there's all the dead bodies and the blood and all that stuff. Like that's the, probably the scariest part. Yeah of the book but i agree like i went to into it and maybe it's just because the name i was expecting also like more of a uh, i don't know like a, a head trip experience where like you're like going into the rabbit hole or something at some point but it didn't really happen so yeah not not what i thought well i don't think the vampires do any drugs other than that the, they drink and i don't know if remember if it really affected them or not like the alcohol i guess i was thinking more like you know um what's that other river novel, Heart of Darkness, where they're sort of going down this mm. river in yeah. the Congo, uh, where just the, the further down too. the river you go, the more insane things become. That's exactly what I thought this book would be, like a Heart of Darkness style. Like it's just one trip. It's not like these like back and forth uh, excursions to <laughs> to make deliveries. Like it would be like this trip to one place, and it would get more of as we went. Like that's what I, exactly what I thought the book would be, but it was not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought the the creepiest bit or the, the scariest bit was actually when they were escaping uh, from the boat with Valerie and um, and York and Valerie's basically just melting and just screaming yeah. how much it hurts and keeps trying to try to attract the other crew members. I thought that was quite creepy. Yeah, you definitely. I mean, we know that Joshua is like the super vampire where he can live during the sun. But when we see someone like her out in the sun, we see how horrific it is. And she actually, she dies. So yeah, yeah, yeah. see the effects of it on her and just totally yeah, burns her and destroys her. And it's, it's tough to read. One other thing that I remembered was the way he defeats Julian, the way that York sort of finally overcomes him is actually by using the red thirst like when he's drinking mm. the wine, he can't actually overcome him. But when he's actually getting into vampire mode, he's able to sort of stare him down. And I thought that was interesting. I didn't know quite what it meant, but it seemed to imply that like, yeah, you need reason and rationality and self-discipline. But at the end of the day, sometimes the only way to win or overcome an oppressor is actually to kind of get in touch with violence and get in touch with this kind of bestial energy. And that's, yeah, that's a good reading of that. I like that. And that's maybe what the big conflict of this book, as as a kind of echo of the Civil War, is it's ultimately an ethical conflict. It's these vampires trying to work out what to do, how to live their lives, and, and Marsh going through the same thing in regards to slavery. And the Civil War isn't actually mentioned, but it's it sort of has this to is, be. At the end is, of the day, it's a it has Civil to... War, though. I mean, it's the vampire Civil War. Yeah, like and it kind of it kind of has to come to blood at the end of the day. If you've got mm. two forces that just can't agree, sometimes mm. you just have to beat them 
That's all well, we got. Yeah. I think so. I think I think we've covered it. So thank, yeah, thanks, thanks, guys. Unless you have, do you have anything else? I think that's it. I, I've been oh. wanting to read this novel for ages. So thanks for reading it with me because uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot too. So thank I you. I guess like, the question is, uh, what, where next? Do we have anywhere else we want to go, or, or are we laying it to rest this uh, reread project for now? Like, what, or what, what is on the the next the list, even if we're not doing it for a while? I mean, I haven't read. I've only read a couple of stories of Tough Voyaging. So one day I'd love to read that. I mean, that might be a longer term project. That's the only thing I can think of of Martin's canon that I'd really like to read. But yeah, no, nothing in terms of short stories. I think I've sort of... We're, we're putting a no on the Armageddon rag, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I would say I, I do. It, it's longer. It takes a while to reread it. Like, I, I think at right. some point it deserves a review. Fair enough. I mean, I, I've read it, and I think it's not as bad as, 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 as it was treated. It just yeah, sounds too ba- it, it sounds too baby boomer. It's about 60s music. <laughs> just too, too divorced from my life experience. Yeah, 60s music with, like, demonic magic. Yeah. No, no, I'm sure I'll, I'll read it one day. One, one final thought in this book, of course, this is a Martin staple, is the uh, the food stuff. I was so hungry reading this book Aww. every time, like, Abner March had, like, his pies and his eggs and whatever, like, just, like, any meal he had. I was like, I want everything. <laughs> I know. I noticed that too. That he just loves to eat, and Martin loves to describe food. <laughs> and he's all, and it, it wields a lot of his emotions. Like he gets really disappointed if they don't serve dessert. <laughs> it sort of ruins the rest of the night for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I get it. Get angry. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, check us out on bastardsofkingsgrave.wordpress.com and the podcast at Ice and Fire forums. And thanks for joining our usual reread group here. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank See you. you guys. Thank you. Okay, I'm glad to be reviewing this book about steamships with a dash of uh, vampires thrown in. (laughs) Yep, yep.